Uh, I hit traffic this morning on the way to this room. <laughs> I, the way that happens is that students come up to ask me questions and, and no, it's a joy. I mean, I don't care if you guys ask me questions on the way to class, but just realize, to be fair to everybody, that's, that's oftentimes why I'm late because like, you know, I feel like I'm walking the Via Dolorosa or something, and I got to make all these stops. You know, <laughs> it's like, hello, oh, okay, next. You know, oh, okay, hello. <laughs> it's like, it's like the, <laughs> you know, I'm not criticizing any student. I, I think, I think asking questions is such an important thing, and I want to be as helpful as I can. But it is quite funny. You know, it's like before I go through the trial, so to speak, of teaching class and having to display faithfulness there, there's like all these mini trials. It's like a bunch of mini games before the big event. So, and, and the total irony is that, you know, their questions make my mind start to think about other things about than class. And so, I'm always nervous that in the middle of class, I'm just going to start lecturing on something totally not about this class. Actually, though, one of the students asked about eschatology, which was definitely related to the Davidic Covenant, but I didn't even have time to tell him about it because I was trying to get here. So, we're out of 2 Samuel 7. took us a little bit, but it was good. And, and the strategy now, if you're wondering, is to get through chapter 8 today. And I think, I think we might go faster than we think. And then 9 and the beginning of 10 on Thursday, and then we're going to take our time through the Bathsheba narrative, just because it is so jam-packed with things, and this, and the Bathsheba narrative really is like the breaking of the covenant. You know, there's breaches that occur, even in what we will talk about today, and you've seen it throughout all of Second Samuel up to this point, but it is shattered irreparably with the Bathsheba incident. And you guys know it's bad, but let me, you have to really slow down and really start to see how terrible this is. And I'm not trying to say, hey, hey, we're better than David or I'm more spiritual than David. No, far be it from me. But David did sin and we can't deny it. Just like when we sin, it is terrible too. Um, and then from there, you can zoom through all the catastrophes that happen after that and, and then see all that's going on and how it reverses everything that we have in the beginning of Second Samuel. And then after that, we get to the epilogue, which then we can slow down and talk about because it is highly theologically charged and synthetic, not fake, but a synthesis of everything that's happened in the book. So with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for, the, for your word and all that you are doing. Um, and help us to make important connections and forge this link of, what, of the power of one man who wields the Davidic covenant and what that does for the nation of Israel, for himself, and for the world. And help us to see that ultimately applied to your son who does fulfill the Davidic covenant and ascribe greater importance and greatness and supremacy to him because of what we learn now about what he will do. Encourage our hearts. Give us clarity and illumination. Thank you for this time. Thank you for 
these students, these fellow believers, and uh, we just ask that there will be great edification now, joy as we study your word, and ultimately worship to the one who is our king, who went through the Davidic covenant suffering to get the Davidic covenant glory. May, may we just have full allegiance, body, soul, mind, spirit, all of our entire being to him. So make that happen at this time, O oh God, for the sake of you and your son. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, yeah, see, this is exactly what happens when people ask me questions on the way to class. So, <coughs> uh, one, one quick, quick thing. You know, I mentioned it, I kind of mentioned it last time, and, you know, there, a long time ago, okay, it's not that long ago, but John MacArthur got in trouble. It's true. Uh, he got arrested, but that was a long, long, long time ago. Uh, you guys know that, right? He got arrested. He has a criminal record. <laughs> you know? Uh, and that was because he, he preached at an African-American church during the time of segregation, so they put him into prison. But that, so he, he got in trouble, but it's not that, it's like kind of good trouble, you know, like a first Peter kind of trouble, where you're suffering as righteous under bad guys. Okay, anyway, but he got in trouble because of something called the sonship, eternal sonship controversy, okay, the eternal sonship controversy, and that was asking whether Jesus was always the son ontologically speaking, that is, in his being, or whether he was just, or he became a son. Does that make sense? Was the Trinitarian relationship Father, Son, Holy Spirit all the time, or was it just three persons in the Trinity without any defined subordination uh, that is not implying inferiority, but just role? Does this make sense to everybody? And just to show you kind of I don't know how to describe it. The tensions of a text, right? For example, Psalm chapter 2 as it's used in Hebrews chapter 1. Psalm 2 says, Today you are my son. Everyone hear that? Today I have begotten you. Everyone remember that passage? And that is directly applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews 1. I would say actually that is, Jesus is in reference in Psalm 2 anyway. Nonetheless, uh, doesn't that kind of sound like Jesus became the Son? Today I have begotten you. Today you are my Son. Does that make sense? And so MacArthur said, hey, this sounds like incarnational sonship rather than eternal sonship. And that got him into a a heap of trouble. Uh, And so eventually he had to recant to that and say, I was wrong. You can read about it on the internet. It was a long time ago. Um, the, the funny thing was, there was a some professor named Larry Pettigrew. He was one of my favorite profs. He had all kinds of funny things, like uh, I asked him out of view, and he would say, well, I gave a 50% chance, or he, you know, I'd say, do you, what do you think about this? He goes, well, this morning I woke up this way, but by lunch I could change my mind. And so you're just like, wow, this guy's cool. Uh, the, but, the, but, but what really made me laugh was, he, when he got hired at Master Seminary, you have to agree with everything that 
the doctrinal statement says, and in the doctrinal statement, it had this incarnational sonship thing. So, do you have any, dis you guys remember this, do you have any disagreements with the doctrinal statement? So he said, yeah, I do. I don't agree with MacArthur's position on incarnational sonship. I think Jesus is eternally the Son, and God loves his Son, and that is a critical part of intertrinitarian relationships and all these impact on systematics. So I disagree with MacArthur. What are you going to do? They're like, well, we're going to hire you. And then, like, right after they hired him, he says, I disagreed with the doctrinal statement, and I said it was wrong, and then they changed it when they hired me. He goes, that's my claim to fame. You know, it's like, all right. <laughs> you got to know the guy, but it's like, I said this was wrong, I disagreed, and then they changed it. So it was good. So I didn't disagree with anything. Uh, it was right around that time, and, and I guess the way he exactly put it was, I disagreed, and then everyone agreed with me. You know, so <laughs> he has a good sense of humor. But here's where things get difficult and where you have to understand that there is a way you build things up towards systematics and some things get you there and some things don't. What is Psalm 2 linked to? <clears throat> Guess. Because we're talking about this class. Starts with a D. Davidic Covenant. I'm glad no one said Deuteronomy. Okay, so <laughs> Davidic Covenant. <laughs> right, there's... I recognize Genesis and Deuteronomy for 2 Samuel, but after you get past 2 Samuel, you know, there are other things that are in play, okay? Davidic Covenant. Psalm 2 says, Today you are my son. What did God say? I will be a father to the king, and he will be a what? Son. This has nothing to do with ontology of who Jesus is. This is, has everything to do with his what? Position as a Davidic king. Do you see how this text is not actually answering the question? This is not asking who you are. This is asking the question of what do you do? Do you see the differences between the two questions? And... Um, Kind of in traditionally, in traditional biblical studies, we frame things kind of like, you know, you have biblical languages, hermeneutics, Bible backgrounds. All three of these things feed into exegesis, which then contributes to biblical theology, which then produces systematics and, uh, you know, biblical counseling and church history and Christian theology. And then all of these things tie into biblical exposition. Well, do you understand why you have to do these two things first before you land here? Because you could be using a text to prove your point that actually doesn't talk about the issue at all. Does this make sense to everybody? This, this reminds me of an analogy that I've used often before. So I, I ask once again a pardon for the redundancy for those of you who have had me. <clears throat> but when I was first teaching here, I taught Greek. Um, yeah, I taught Greek and... I was teaching the one of the owners of Baja Fresh in my class. Like he owned the franchises in Santa Clarita. And what what a godly man and what a godly gentleman. So he said, you know, I know college students are starving and this is the summer, so there's no I mean, you have to run you, you guys, if you've taken a summer class, you know, you just run to the calf because it's about to close. It's like a brilliant time to open and close. But anyway, the, so I want to supply, I want to cater lunch one day for you guys, just free. And 
all-you-can-eat kind of Baja fresh in the classroom. And I was like, wow, that is such, that is so generous. You know, thank you. Thank you so much. And this girl is there. And she, she doesn't know who this godly man is and what he does. And she says, well, I like Pizza Hut a lot. <laughs> Can I get Pizza Hut? And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, please, rapture, rapture, you know. <laughs> get me out. <laughs> Give me an exit now from the embarrassment and the shame. But <laughs> he's, you know, and this gentleman just so graciously said, you know, yeah, you know, I, I could try. I have some friends who own Pizza Hut, implied. <laughs> and maybe we could try to get that for you, too. But it's like, at the moment that he says, I can buy you Baja Fresh, the question you are not supposed to ask, and the answer you are not supposed to expect, is something about Pizza Hut. Here's a text. It has specific questions in exegesis and biblical theology. Don't take it a different direction. Does that make sense to everybody? Um... You know, so when we talk about Jesus the Son, there are two ways to take it. Both of them are true. Jesus has an eternal relationship with God. God loves His Son, and therefore there is subordination, loving subordination, not because of inferiority, but because of role. But there is also another aspect of sonship, which is kingship. When God declares, this is my Son, it will imply that this is the true King. Does that make sense? Yeah. Correct. You have to do that all the time. Most theological errors are derived from text misapplied, taken in the totally in a totally wrong direction. You know, so you got to be very careful about that. The text is going this way, and you made it answer something this way. It kind of kind of makes me laugh and chuckle a little bit, like uh, tongues, for example. That's a always been a hot, not always, but in recent times has been a hot theological issue. And the major place you get it from the discussion is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is bashing the Corinthians for their total misapplication and use of tongues. So the only time you really see tongues in the New Testament totally explained is because it is used wrong. And people are like, oh, but the Corinthians did it. And I'm like, yes, that was the whole problem. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, and you're just, you know, it's like, oh boy. And, and there's a lot to be learned from the text, but you can't miss how the direction of where it's going. Does that make sense to everybody? Be very careful about this kind of stuff. All right? Yeah. So can we even relate, like, with the sonship, can we relate Psalm 2 because it talks about begetting him? Well, what does this mean with the relationship of king? Think of this. <clears throat> okay, let's use a, let's use a um, more relatable instance, David Solomon. David is very sick, right, toward the end of his life, and he says, this is my son. Today, he has become the son. Well, was, David, was Solomon always David's son? Surely, right? It's not like, oh, well, well gee, you know, David, I, I guess, I didn't know you had this kid named Solomon. No, he was always the son. 
But today he has become what? My son, as in he has become me. He has become the king. David, our God, in the, through the Davidic covenant, in Psalm 2 says, today, because of what the Messiah has done, he is my son. He is me. You know, like father, like son, the capital K-I-N-G has announced his what? Official lowercase K-I-N-G. Because the father and the son, they love each other and they are in essence one. Right? Uh, notice the analogy that our Lord gives later in Matthew after the triumphal entry in 21. Surely the vineyard owners will accept my son. That's, and what do the vineyard owners think? If we kill the son, we own the property. Why do they think that? Because the father and the son are the same. It's an ancient Near Eastern, it's an ancient mindset. The father and the son are the same, in a sense, by position, by role. So if you kill the son, you get the property. Why? Because it's like you kill the father. Does that make sense to everybody? So we can't, you cannot confuse what this is talking about with something else that's talking about something different, apples and oranges. Does that make sense to everybody? I don't know why I went on that, but it was just bugging me. Oh, it's because a student had a question. But the, this is the importance of the Davidic covenant because it orients how things work and what things are being talked about, what things aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that too much? No, no, it's, it's an important question. And you cannot be so hard. You know, I can be hard on you guys for missing it because you're in my class and I expect you to know it. But you can't, I couldn't, you know, I'm not going to go out and confront a pastor like, you loser, like, don't you understand the DC? I mean, like, 2 Samuel 7, 1 Corinthians 17, you're like, what's wrong with you? You know, or something. you're not going to say that, right? Um, it, yeah. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, too, so maybe this is just a slam on the Midwest. But, uh, yeah, Davidic, you know, Davidic Covenant, I didn't even know what that thing was until, like, Master's College, you know. I knew about David, and I heard about the word covenant, but Davidic Covenant, like, I never heard that combo. Um, <clears throat> but it is, is it taught a lot in seminaries? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, but you know what? It's just, you got to be kind of fair to the system, okay? And this is what we're trying to change here, is in seminary, you're supposed to learn everything. Like, you're supposed to learn biblical languages, hermeneutics, all the Bible background of every single book of the Bible, how to do exegesis, how to do biblical theology, preach, counsel, have church history in three years. And that's just that's just ridiculous. I mean, that's not even. Po- I mean, that's unless you're a super genius, you're not going to get it all. You know, your 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 brain is going to be on graduation, not on this. So, uh, 
you know, your brain, I mean, and most seminarians, they're just trying to survive. You know, like, I'm starving and having to learn about all this and having to provide for a family and knowing that after all this, somehow I'm going to have to put this together and, and find a church. Yeah, it's like, oh. And, and so there, so to be fair, it's just not fair to make everyone learn this. This is like me trying to make you learn everything from elementary addition all the way through calculus in three years. You know, even the United States of America understands that takes maybe 12 years. You know, like kindergarten to high school. You know, it's like, but we don't do that at the master's seminary or at any seminary in the entire world. We just, we just try to, let's, you know, let's get it all done. Yeah. Uh, and what we're trying to change here is if you start to learn this when you're young, right, then it's not crazy to do this when you're older. So your job when you get back home is to teach little kids about the Davidic covenant. You know, or, and you might not, there's ways, you know, you might not want to use all the technical jargon and stuff like that, but there are ways. God made some very important promises to David about the world. You know, it's like, ooh. And, you know, everything's riding on this, you know. There are ways to study it. And, and really, from personal experience, and I speak a little anecdotally here, but I think I have some biblical grounds for it. You know, children, particularly high school, junior high people, they love this stuff. They're tired of you telling them, well, you got to obey your mom and dad, don't do drugs, don't drink alcohol, don't dance at school, be nice to people. I mean, those are all true things. And I'm not knocking on youth pastors who say that because I understand the politics and everything. But you want to really challenge somebody? Go in and say, guess what? God only died for the elect. Oh. <laughs> that might stir some conversation, right? That they've never thought of before. Even if you are a four-point Calvinist, just say the five-point position, just to stir something up, you know? Or, you know, you know, and, and they and they start to think, "Whoa, the Bible is big," because it got it has thoughts that go beyond my thoughts, you know. Uh, that's why when. You get them on theology early, you know. None of this, uh, well, they can't handle it. Look, if you can handle calculus and science and English lit, then you can handle the Bible. There's no, there's no excuse, right? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of background to the whole Sunday school movement and stuff, and I wish I had time to explain it, but it's quite destructive. And it produces people who are, uh, it produces an entire system that is literally oppressive against the church. So your job is to go home and break it. Yeah. One last question. You talked about uh, David and Solomon as an example of like, uh, this is my son. Yeah. Uh, where is that? End of First Chronicles. Yeah. You could also check out... Um, First Kings one and two, but yeah, actually that that would work too. But um, um, yeah, end of First Chronicles is what I'm thinking of as an illustration. Okay.
uh, yeah. So we're just trying to reverse a system, right? Al Moore once wisely said, every professor of, his, of Southern is trying to work themselves out of a job. And I thought at first, oh, that sounds terrible. You know, like, uh, I'm going to lose my job if I continue with this. Well, one, I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot of time for it to happen. And two, no, I'll just go to a church. That'll be great. <laughs> so it's like, well, that was easy. that was an easy objection to settle out. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but there is a lot. I mean, this is what you guys are here for, right? You're here so that we can reverse the trend, so that little kids growing up in church don't think that the Bible's boring or dumb or just about what God wants them to do. It is about that. It's not boring or dumb, but it is about what God wants them to do, to be sure. And we can't deny those things or lose those things, but there's a lot more power to it. And it will challenge the way they think and see the world. And why not? They should do those kind of things. Right? So that's your job. You know, I did my job. I sent I got I gave it all to you. And then now you it's your job. You know, the buck now goes to you. Alright. We are in chapter eight of Second Samuel and <clears throat> As we have kind of framed the Davidic covenant, and just even this morning, a little bit illustrated, the Davidic covenant is the convergence point of so many promises. In fact, perhaps all of them. And so because it is so big and important, uh, God wants to show you that he's serious. And so 2 Samuel 8 is about kind of what happens when you have one man who wields the Davidic covenant. That's the question 2 Samuel 8 is having. And really, the reason is this. And you don't experience this problem as much as an Israelite would. We said that the Davidic covenant is hinged upon what? The right, the right guy, the right person. Everyone remember that. That's been the recurring theme without, within 2 Samuel. David, will you take the temptation? No, I won't take the temptation. Okay, you're the right guy for the job. Remember, do you handle yourself with integrity? Do you wait for God? The capital K-I-N-G to lowercase K-I-N-G relationship is absolutely critical, to be sure. <clears throat> now, the question is, okay, but can one person with these promises actually change the world? That's the question. You know it's possible because you already have Jesus in the whole answer book. And so you're like, well, yeah, obviously it's possible. It's not a problem. Israel doesn't. Does that make sense to everybody? Israel doesn't. So God has to prove to not only Israel, but the entire world, you're looking for one guy, just one. And he's the, Davidic, and he's the guy who holds the Davidic covenant in his hand, so to speak. And if he has it, you better bow fast, or it'll be too late for you. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. And if he's angry with you, that's bad news for you. Does that make sense to everybody? The world needs a proof. They need a demonstration of power that will do this. And that is what 2 Samuel 8 is trying to describe. When you've got the right person and he's got the Davidic covenant, so to speak, the sword in his hand, what can he do? What can he do? Well, let's find out, shall we? 
Now, after this, verse 1, the words after this actually indicate everything that I just said. After this, in Hebrew, is a critical phrase. A critical phrase in 2 Samuel. I even said it in my opening lecture, okay, not my opening, like my fourth lecture in, in 2 Samuel 1. Because after this is a, is a way for the author of 2 Samuel to communicate, hey, look, I just talked about the Davidic covenant. After this, let me show you its effects. By the way, do you know when the next after this is going to occur? Anyone know? Chapter 10. Not right before David and Bathsheba. Not like at that incident in and of itself. At the opening scene of when things start to go wrong, when David stops acting like a king in chapter 10 with his interactions <coughs> with Nahash. Okay. That's going to be very important because you think David and Bathsheba happens when? When David and Bathsheba happens. Uh-uh. It happens when? Chapter 10. Way before. That's what the text is trying to indicate to you. Let me put it this way. If chapter 8 and 9 are talking about the good things, what do you think chapter 10 and following are talking about? The bad things. So when does it start to get bad? In chapter 10. Not in chapter 11. Do you see that? That's going to be critical for you to understand to tie some things together about David, Bathsheba, Joab, the whole bit. But these are the good things. Let's not get, let's not get too pessimistic yet because this is supposed to be good and happy. It came about after this. This is the good things. What can a person do, one man do, with the Davidic covenant? What can, what can this guy, what is he capable of? Okay. Well, the first thing he does, this is David, is he what? Who does he first hit? The Philistines. The Philistines. Uh, Philistines control the coastal plain region right around here. Philistines. What does he do with the Philistines? He strikes them and he subdues them. Literally, he humbles them. This is complete subjection. And then actually, it says in your NAS text, David took back the chief city from the hands of the Philistines. Yes? The literal wording is... Um, anyone got an ESV with them? Yeah. Read it. What does it say? After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. Yeah, Methagama. You're like, what does that mean? The bridle of the forearm. The bridle of the forearm from the Philistines. And there are a variety of views about uh, this name. Is it, it, could, it could be a weird idiom for chief city, bridle of the forearm. Or it could be a real place. But the problem is, we know the cities of the Philistines. They are enumerated for us. And they don't include Methagama. Okay? like Gath and Gaza and Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron. A-A-G-G-E. Aja. If you want to remember how it like flows, you know, if you go to Ibex. When you go to Ibex, you should go to Ibex. So the, you know, you can memorize the five cities of the Philistines in such a manner. Here's, 
here's the dilemma. What does this word mean? It could be a city that we don't know of. It could be uh, talking about the chief city. It could be a way of saying chief city, which could be actually Gath. <coughs> or what, what is a bridle of a forearm? What does a bridle do? This is not a trick question. Just say it. Controls. Yeah, a bridle controls, right? That's like the horse's mouth, right? You, you put a bridle on and you can steer the horse. Okay, what's the forearm in, in biblical imagery? What, when God's, he uses a different word, but the same picture of an outstretched arm. What does that mean? Power. Yeah, power. The ability to have government. So a bridle of the forearm would mean what? That, the, that David controls what? All the power. And that could be because he took over their capital. That could be true. But what is the text here emphasizing? David now rules over who? The Philistines. David rules over the Philistines. Okay, he, he controls everything they do. In other words, the Philistines are a nation, but they're a what kind of nation? Puppet nation. They're a puppet nation. Who's calling all the shots? David. What does this fulfill in the Davidic covenant or related covenants? What does this fulfill in the Davidic covenant or related covenants to the Davidic covenant? Say it again. Land promise. That's true. I will plant you in the land. What land? The land that I promised you, including this, which also means what? David is fulfilling his role as who? When was this supposed to be conquered? During the conquest. And remember what we said? Why was it so significant that David took over Jerusalem? Because that proved that he could actually accomplish accomplish what? What the conquest didn't. He's the new Joshua. So, that's good. David fulfills also what Saul could not. Who did Saul always fight? Philistines. Now David what? Has dominion. One, one man with the Davidic covenant can start to fulfill and undo all the history that has happened before. You know this, and it's important for the Israelites to know this because, well, because of the fact that the Philistines were the most immediate enemy. But it keeps going from there. He defeats, who's the next person he defeats? Moab. Moab, uh, Moab, Ammon, and Edom kind of like go down this way. And Moab is kind of like right around here. Why Philistines and then Moab, by the way? You take over the far, what direction is this way? Never eat shredded wheat, so it's west, and then you show, show what? The farther east direction. So now both flanks of Israel are established. See that? He defeats Moab, and here's something weird. Read verse 2 and tell me what happens. Okay, stop right there. 
So what is that? Okay, well, tell me what he did. Be, be very meticulous here. So here's David. Let's just draw it. And what does he have? He has a, he has a bunch of Moabites. Then what? I'm not tricking you. He measures them. Oh, well, he does something first. He makes them lay down. Okay, so next scene. M for Moab on their head, okay. And then he measures them with a what? A line. Okay, here's David. And he has a measuring tape. And he measures them with string, you know. And what happens? It's not a trick question. I'm just basing it all on the text. He kills two lines. And what? One line spared. Does that make sense, everybody? You take a yard. You you. I don't want to do this to real people, but you know, you know, you take you measure. You got a yardstick. Does that make sense, everybody? And you lay people down, and you put one yardstick at somebody's foot, and then put another yardstick and another yardstick. And whoever's covered in the first two yardsticks, what happens? They're dead. And the third yardstick, what? They live. And then what happens? You repeat the process again. So if you, know, you pray that you're either next to somebody really tall <laughs> that can get you high enough past the two lines to the third line, right? Like in a different scenario. Okay, hold on. Wow, look at this tall dude. And then, you know, you make it. Does that make sense to everybody? And you also pray that you're not next to a what? Really short guy. Because then you're, even if you're normal size, you're not going to make it. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you have a question? So, I mean, like, you're David Robinson laying down, like, do they get your feet? Or are they just, how do they separate the ones? Well, basically, the commander, okay, let's say, I don't think it's this way, but just for our, because we would be used to it. Let's say you had a certain length of string that was blue and a shorter length that was red. You lay the string down, right? And people are laying on the ground. He makes them lay on the ground. And you, as the commander, say, everyone who's touching the blue string dies. If you're on the red string, you're alive. Does that make sense of how this went down or no? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cruel, huh? Yeah. I don't understand why he kept the, the one for the every third person or whatever. Because, especially with him being like the new Joshua. Yeah, why not kill them all, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like obliteration. That was like the purpose of the conquest, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. <clears throat> but was Moab part of the original conquest? Where did, where did the nation Moab come from? Do you know what the, na- the word Moab means? Anyone? No? That's okay. Just remember it now. You'll, you'll definitely remember after this class. Moab means, who's my father? Who is my daddy? Why is, why is Moab's name that? Yeah. Lot and his daughters. Remember this? <clears throat> Lot married... No, he didn't marry. Lot 
his daughters slept with him, producing two children. Yes? One's name was Ammon, and the other one's name was Moab. Lot is related to who? Abraham. Their family. They can't, the conquest didn't involve Moab. Their family. But the reason who is my daddy is so apropos is because of what? Yeah, that's true. That comes later. But why did, why did the daughter's name Moab, Moab? Lot is their what? Father. But he's also their grandfather. And also their uncle. Right? So, who is my father? And their brother is also their cousin. Okay? And their, you know, the aunt. Okay, anyway. So, the, the, do you understand the whole problem here? Uh, you know, this, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't think about it too long. It will just make, either disgust you or make your head start to spin. Who is my daddy? Even though they're so despicable, they're still family. They're still family. Moab, who is my father? And so Israel is not licensed and allowed to exterminate that nation because they're family. Family relations must be respected. In fact, that is precisely why Moab is not taken over, but... Moab doesn't always return the favor to Israel. Moab has a history in the past of always afflicting Israel. Baal Peor, Moab, and Midian tried to subjugate Israel through spiritual apostasy. Throughout the time period of the judges particularly, remember Eglon? King, he's, he's, a, he's part in a coalition with Moab. Does that make sense to everybody? And so you've got to kill that guy. And also later, Jephthah, Remember him? He fights against the Moabites. Does that make sense to everybody? Moab is continually plaguing Israel, particularly in the time of the judges. And so finally, David has to take the matter into his own hands and forcibly end the persecution. Does that make sense to everybody? That's why he has to go through such dramatic measures. He has to show justice, but he also shows what? Mercy. Because he honors the family relations, but teaches them a lesson. Don't you dare, don't you dare mess with Israel again. And from that point on, what happens with Moab? Moab becomes what? At the end of verse 2. Servants bringing tribute. By the way, this domination continues for approximately 200 years. That's what that did. One man with the Davidic covenant can do some lethal damage for 200 years. The hand of David weighs on Moab because they don't dare make a move. Does that make sense to everybody? This is power, but what does it fulfill in the Davidic covenant? You've already said certain things like, oh, you know, re you know rest from the enemies. That's true, generally speaking, all throughout this. Uh, you said, you know, here, fulfilling against Saul. Uh, you said here, new conquest. But I want a specific phrase from 2 Samuel 7. I want a specific phrase of what this fulfills. you got to say the exact phrase or what this goes against. Give me the exact phrase from 2 Samuel 7. 
It does fulfill that, but I'm thinking of something even more. That's true, but I'm looking for something more. Wait, wait, what? That's true, and that's what God is doing here. I have no disagreements. That is all in play. But there's a specific phrase. That's true too, but it's not the specific phrase. Be careful, you're going to start reading me the entire text of 2 Samuel 7, and hopefully you'll get it by that. But Yes. It will not be like the time I appointed the judges. Remember, what did I just say that happened with Moab all the time? When did they plague Israel the most? During the time period of the judges. God says, it's over. Right? And what's the power of one man with the Davidic covenant? He puts an end to the oppression like the judges for a period of 200 years. Not permanently, but 200 years. Does that make sense to everybody? What is the Davidic covenant promise, though? It will be ended what? Permanently. Does that make sense? But we already know, kind of, David's not the right guy for the job. We already know, kind of, that... He's waiting for somebody else anyways because God, even in the Davidic covenant, says so. So 2 Samuel 8 is a proof. Can one man with the Davidic covenant really make such a great difference? Yes. 200 years worth of difference. Okay. Verse 3. The next guy, Zobah. Where is Zobah? Zobah is somewhere in Galilee, probably 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, actually. And Zobah has connections. <clears throat> Zobah's kind of like JFK uh, airport. Not, <laughs> not the person, okay? Or LAX. There we go. I can't confuse that. When you want to fly to Asia for, for some weird reason, you will have to fly through San Francisco or LAX. It's just the way it works. They're the exit point from America to the other to the other side of the world. Does that make sense? Same thing with JFK. If you are in that whole area, JFK, Newark, things like that, if you're flying through Continental, you're going to fly through those, through those airports to get to Israel or to Europe. Does that make sense to everybody? That's just the way it is. Zoba is a region which exits you into the region of Mesopotamia. That's the major trade point. Does that make sense to everybody? So... David fights against the king of Zobah, and he goes to restore his rule where? At the river. The river is either is a reference to what river? Anyone know? That would be a good guess, but the problem is Zobah is above the Jordan River. So it's like, why would you fight all the way up here to establish something all the way down here? Euphrates. 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 Because, remember what I said? Zoba is the exiting point to where geographically? Mesopotamia. David was in a bid to extend his dominion all the way to the Euphrates. Fulfillment of what? And I want a passage. Bless you. 
text, fulfillment of what, and what passage. I'll give you a funny comment. Uh, that is true, but it's not, it's not exactly the one we're looking for. You know, we were giving ideas on how to improve the Bible major senior. Keep looking, don't just listen as I, look as you listen so I, I can fill the dead space of you trying to find it frantically, yes? look up something in your index or something. Hey, if you got an iPhone or something, just type in Euphrates, right, into your phone, and, and then you should be able to find it some way or another. Okay, <clears throat> while you're doing that, how to improve senior seminar and to improve uh, you know, senior competency. And I said, in, you know, well, we should have senior sem be one professor at a table and just ask, like, popping questions to random people in the classroom like this. Like, Euphrates, where's the, where's the promise located? Doom, you know, doom, doom, doom. And then you're graded on how fast you respond. Everyone in the Bible department liked that. I think we're going to do it next semester. <laughs> Everyone's like, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to back. List all the times that Euphrates is mentioned. Now, there's you know, 57 of them. Boom, 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 boom. You know, like, go. No, no, no. We're not. I mean, it would be more like, so somebody, you know, defend the life of Christ, or not the life of Christ, defend the deity of Christ now. Boom. Yes, sir. Genesis 15, yes. Good job. Genesis 15, 18. The fundamental promise about the land. Genesis 15 is in the established what covenant? Yes. Abrahamic covenant, because there is no Moses at that time, right? So it can't be Mosaic, can't be priestly. Noah's already been dead for a while, so it can't be Noahic. Abrahamic covenant. And God said, I promise you the land. What kind of land? To the Euphrates. Remember what I said? The Davidic covenant, every promise goes where? Into it. Every promise converges there. Does that make sense to everybody? And God was serious when he said that. What can one man do with the Davidic covenant? He can fulfill all covenants. Specifically, he can extend his reign to where God wanted him to go, to the Euphrates. Does that make sense to everybody? Genesis 15, 18. Do not forget that. He extends his lordship out to that region. <clears throat> In the meantime, as he's doing this massive campaign, David captures 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. Now, and he's hamstrings chariot horses and, uh, and such. Well, what passage? I can't believe this. What passage? Deuteronomy. You, you don't, you sh bells should be going. The 1 a.m. rule should be resounding. Three G's, which are? Yeah, 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 good. That, that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Guys, 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 guys. When you read a passage like this, that's what's, these kind of things have to be running through your head. Okay? You can't just be like, well, that sounds really nice. Look, he's killed like 1,700 horsemen. Whoa, God is powerful. Amen, he is. But if you don't pick up David Hamstrung, the chariot horses, Law of the King. 
you know, and that just bursts through your brain, then I'm going to, I really will go to your dorm room and wake you up at 1 a.m. and do that until you start making these connections. Was right again, David will not, is a king, and he is under the capital K-I-N-G, so he hamstrings the horses. Is that good or bad? Good. Why? Because you cannot depend on gold, you cannot depend on foreign alliances described through women, and you definitely cannot depend on horses to save you. You have to depend on who? The capital K-I-N-G. That is Deuteronomic. It is foundational to the entire equation. And David here acts like a king. But what? What happens? He, he reserves enough of them for what? 100 chariots. Good or bad? Bad. And right at this moment, you're saying, oh, look, this, look at one, what one person can do with the Davidic covenant in hand, this person will not hold that covenant for very long. He's not the one. Does that mean everybody? He's not the one. He failed. F. Not, I mean, I probably would have done worse. That's not my point. But my point is, he did fail. He's not the right guy. Do you see how Second Samuel always is just like cutting David a little bit? He is a good guy, but... Uh uh-uh. uh, he's not the one. He's not the one. He's not the one. Over and over. Even when it's supposed to be a good moment, right? Eight and nine are supposed to be good. Ten and following are supposed to be bad. But even in the good, he's not all the way up there. He is not all the way up there. <clears throat> so, David continues the campaign. Zoba is up here. And it's part of the ent- exit way, which is actually connected to another bigger nation called Aram. Aram. You know it as modern-day Syria. Not to be confused with Assyria, just Syria. And David goes again to kill the Arameans. By the way, uh-huh, yeah. I just had a question about the horses, because in Deuteronomy 18 it says, like, not to acquire many horses, and we see that, like, he does have the ability that he could have kept many horses, and yet he, it seems like he is obeying. And the he's idea not, he's not hoarding them and like not like having an abundance, but he's keeping some for the wrong purpose. The reason you would multiply horses is the same way you would multiply guns, right? Why does the United States multiply guns? It ain't for hunting, you know, because you don't need all the weapons for that, right? You wouldn't need like millions of weapons to go hunting every deer season, right? You do it for your military. And here's David's problem. You can multi- God has no problem with them reserving horses. Did David kill the horses? No, he hamstrung them. You guys know what hamstringing the horse is? Oh, okay. Sorry, my bad. Um, hamstringing a horse isn't killing a horse. Right? If you hamstring a horse, the horse is still okay. okay? It just can't gallop. You, you cut a tendon or a, a certain muscle in the horse's guess hamstring and <laughs> all right you know the, the and then and from there you know you keep you can keep the horse and he can do farming stuff for you does that make sense he just can't pull a chariot god didn't say get rid of horses but 
So David didn't. He didn't kill the horses. He just hamstrung them to follow the command of God. But the problem was he reserved some. He didn't hamstring all of them. He could have, but he didn't. Why? Because he wants to have a military. This is going to bite him back very hard at the very end of the book of 2 Samuel. But we are not there yet, not even close. And so I hope that kind of answers your question. You can't have horses. You just can't have them for military purposes. That's God's point. And so it looks like, oh, David, you know, he's humane. He didn't kill the horses. Yay. But he didn't do it all the way. And so he fails. He conquers the Arameans, the Syrians, and puts garrisons along this region. And so now, David really controls from this point. If he has control, and this is why you have to go to Israel. Okay, I just really say this in all sincerity and seriousness. You just have to go because you're not going to really, I mean, unless you're really good with maps and military stuff, and maybe some of you are, uh, you're just not going to be able to grapple with this as fresh unless you're in the land. Does that make sense? If you control this region, and you control this region, and you control this region, not only are you controlling regions, you're controlling routes, which are as important as regions. Okay? If you control the routes, that means you control where all the money flows. If the reason David has garrisons in Aram is because now he can control the entire land in between everywhere. That means he has the kingdom. That means he has all the money. Why did Solomon get so much cash? Why did he get so rich? It wasn't because he was really good with trade. It was because he put a tariff along the entire region. So if you want to travel along the toll road, that's one million, that's 10% of your trade, please. And guess what the problem is? You have to travel along here. So every day, people come through 10%, 10%, 10%. Well, that accumulates quite a bit, doesn't it now? That would be like if Hotchkiss controlled the entire line all the way to the calf from Hotchkiss, okay? And they just had people stationed there. And if you wanted to walk around the road, I'll need to take 10 flex bucks from you every time you pass. Because that ain't just going to the calf, right? That means you, that's on your way back up to the dorm. Does that make sense? Unless you want to walk along the, the, the hill of death, you know, or something like that. <laughs> or if you want to get to the library, or if Joe Keller needs to see you, and so you need to go to King Hall, that's 10 flex bucks, both ways. Do you see how that could end up with a lot of cash for Hotchkiss? Yes, precisely. Actually, the best dorm to use for this example would be CDUP because they control the entire line, right? So it's like, you want to go to the parking lot? Okay, that's $10. You want to get out of the parking lot? That's $10. Do you see how this would add up really big? And do you see how by doing that, you would control the entire campus? Do you see that? That's what David did. One man with the Davidic covenant can control the trade of the world. That's why God had to give him this land so that it had the potential for that usage. And if you have the Davidic covenant, you can be the man to do that. Yes, sir? Uh, jumping back a second. Yeah. Did, um, did God put this tactic in David's heart or was it a common uh, way of punishment in that day? It was the... 
We don't know if God put the tactic in David's heart because the text doesn't tell us, but it was a common way to do it in that day. It was. I mean, you two, not you. You three, not you. Does that make sense? It was a common... He, David was going through with an aggressive practice of the day. Yeah. But it's interesting that you ask that because what we will see <coughs> in verse 6, David has it. They're bringing tribute to him too. And look at what the text says at the end of verse 6. Why could this all work? Because what? God gave him victory. What does the text say? It's, I agree with you. Just read the text. Yeah, but next phrase. The Lord helped David wherever he went. Yeah, the Lord helped David wherever he went. Do you see that? The word for helped is not the normal Hebrew word for helped. It's the word for save. David, God saved David. So victory should Yeah, I mean, God granted him victory. That's okay. But the idea is this. Sometimes David did something what? Dumb. But it doesn't matter if David did something dumb. He's the man with the Davidic covenant. It's like the invincibility mode in a video game. It doesn't matter, like, you know, okay, look, you know, you show up with a pistol with all these zombies or something. It doesn't matter if you're just totally unarmed. If you're, in, if you're, if you're invulnerable to their attack, you just keep shooting them until they die, right? That's what a lot of teenage boys do, I think. So anyway, but the, you know, but, but do you understand the point? It doesn't matter what David does. He could just run up there by himself and be like, I'll take you all on. And everyone's like, that's crazy. God will save him. God, you can't touch him. He's the man with the what? Davidic covenant. Can one man make such a difference? Yes, because when he wields the Davidic covenant correctly with positive blessing, God will always deliver him. By the way, by the way, this is reiterated in Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Okay. Psalm 90 is, about, is written by Moses, but Psalm 91 is written by, uh, you know, by about the Davidic king. Okay. And do you know who quotes Psalm 91? Do you know who quotes Psalm 91? And in what context? Anyone know? Glance through it and it might ring a bell. And who quotes it? Hmm? Who quotes it? Satan. To who? When? The temptation. What specific temptation? Jump off a jump off the high point and the angels will catch you. Because you're invulnerable. You know that. And was Satan right or wrong? Yes. He was right. Was Jesus, before the end, was Jesus invulnerable? No one could touch him, right? He walks through the crowd. They're trying to stone him. Nothing happens. But he was wrong because Jesus should not use that privilege for those purposes. Does that make sense? Psalm 91 is God's promise to the Davidic king. You are invulnerable. As long as you abide in the covenant, you are invulnerable. 
You know, you're in cheat mode in the video game. I love it. It's great. You can do crazy things. God will send his angels to save you. That's what's going on here in action in the text. Does that make sense to everybody? Can one man with the Davidic covenant change the world? Yes. Yes, he can. Because God saves him. So David took the shields of gold. Interesting there. <clears throat> what should you be immediately thinking? Yeah, there you go. Good. Much better. That response time was, I wish somebody had just had cut me off. You know, three Gs. But we can do that the next time. So God, David takes the gold, and there's legitimate spoil, but what does he do? Does he gather it for himself? What does the text say? He brings it where? To Jerusalem. Probably not for himself, probably to dedicate it to the Lord. <clears throat> probably to dedicate it to the Lord. Okay? As it will be later said in verse 9 and 10. Okay? In, in doing this, David begins to show that he is allowing the nation, he is bringing the nations and their riches to who? To worship the Lord. Part of an essential Davidic characteristic. This will be expanded in verses <coughs> 9 and 10. Key word in 9 and, or particularly 10. Key word in 10. Key word in 10, and what is it linked to? Bless. Very good. And it links to Abrahamic specifically. Uh, no, this time no. Sorry. Two passages I'll accept. Particularly the latter one. In. In you, all nations will be blessed. Or Genesis 22, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. Here is a nation coming to David to what? Greet him and to bless him. David is in... Why did they come? <clears throat> Specifically to bring their wealth to David, but also to form an alliance because they know that David now controls what? The entire trade route. Does that make sense to everybody? And so we need an allegiance with you. And so David brings them in. They bless him. They are blessed also by him. This is beginning to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Israel's hegemony brings a certain type of order to the world whereby Israel is exalted, but the world is also benefited. Does that make sense to everybody? Can one man with the Davidic covenant make a difference? Yes. It's possible for one man to do this. That is exactly why Yoram brought with him silver, gold, and bronze. What should be going off in your head? Three G's. And verse 11, here's what he did. He dedicated these things to the Lord. He, dedicated, he made them holy. And so, he uses these things for worship. For a blessing. Okay. Verse 13. <clears throat> so David what? Made a name for himself. 
passage, exact passage. I will make you a great name, greater than any of the greatest men in the earth. Second Samuel 7, yes? Fulfilled. God is serious about this. And we start to see, in fact, I don't even have time to totally show you this, but um, well, a little bit. Okay, okay. Tell me the order of Second Samuel 7. Tell me exactly the outline of how it goes based upon the I will statements. Okay? Before verse uh, <clears throat> verse 11. Okay? So starting with verse 9, at the very end of it, what do you have? I will make you what? A great name. So, great name. Then what's the next I will? Point a place. Then what's the next one? Rest from all your enemies. Then what? House. Okay, stop right there. David prays at the end of chapter 7, give us the house. So God says, okay. Eight. What does God do through David? He, you already said it. He gives, every, he gives them what from their enemies? Rest, because that's what he's been doing. That's why you take out Moab, Philistia, Zobah, Aram, everyone with me on that. So that's a check. And when he does that, what happens? He establishes a place. That's what I exactly talked about with what? All the trade routes and the flow and the dominion all the way to the Euphrates. And that actually connects to the Abrahamic covenant. Everyone remember this? So then what does God do? in the last verse that we just discussed. He gives him a great name. Check, check, check. All in backwards order. Why? Because the great name is defined by the rest. Do you see that? So he just goes in backwards order. And if you're really paying attention, if you go forward, then you go backward. What is that? Chiasm. See? Which means what's in the middle? House. Where did you see that before? The first line of 2 Samuel 7, 1. See the artistry there? It wasn't by accident. This was already laid out for us at the very beginning. By the way, if you want a good example of chiasm, read, if you give a cat a cupcake. I just read to my son last, last weekend, and it was a chiastic to the core. Okay? I even used that in intro to biblical languages to prove that we can recognize chiasm and that the author wrote intentionally in a chiasm. Yeah? Um, back to verse 10 when it talked about uh, the other nations mm-hmm. uh, coming to David to greet him and bless him. Yeah. How is it that other nations are blessed by him? It seems like Israel is being blessed by them. Yes. The whole reason is it's both and. The word for blessing in the Hebrew is passive, I think. But the idea is that 
the, they are intrinsically blessed, but they are, because of this, and this is the implication, I think, they're going to bless others. And so what you have here is they recognize that linking with Israel will bring them blessing. So they bring blessing to Israel. The only reason, and here, here's where history of ancient Israel will come into play. Do you just go to another nation and be like, wow, you guys are doing great. Here's some gold. What do you do that for? To make an treaty. I see that God has given you rest from all your enemies and appointed you a place. I want some of the pie. So it's like a protection. <clears throat> and then so they become part of Israel and they are what? Blessed. From that hegemony, that protection, and then they bring a blessing to Israel because of it. Yep. Does that make sense? David makes a great name when he returns from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. Now, there is a controversy here because uh, Arameans, Chronicles 18, has Edomites. And it's probably a mix of both and. Edom and Aram. Okay, think about this for a second. Edom's down here. Okay, actually even a little further south. (coughs) Edom and Aram have alliance because what are they trying to do to Israel? What, what do you need to do? How do you, do you remember my lecture on how you win battles with political treaties? Probably not. I think I might have only done it in history of ancient. There's a method called the, anyone know? Sandwich. Yeah, that's right. The sandwich. So what are they trying to do? Sandwich. Israel. Does that make sense? If you can form the sandwich, you pinch them from both sides, and then Israel doesn't have enough troops to commit to both sides of the battle. Does that make sense? It's like a big blitz, you know? That's why, like in football, there is no play because that would be just terrible where you can put people behind the offensive line, right? That would be awesome, but you can't do that, right? You have to, you have to line everybody up because that would just be totally cheating, but that would make a good cheat, right? Like all of a sudden the quarterback sacked from the guy behind him. It's like, where did that come from? Well, sandwich, you know, dead. Uh, <clears throat> but by the way, that's what you do in football too, right? You have, you try to get people on both sides, a flank maneuver. Well, this is a flanking maneuver right here. Does that make sense? So that's why uh, people who know football can really understand battles in Israel really well. They just get it and political treaties and stuff. They, they understand what's going on. You're forming the line and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, back to this. So they're trying to do a pincher movement. So that means they've got to cross back here to each other and fight over here. Does that make sense to everybody? So there's probably a joint coalition between the Arameans and the Edomites. Are you with me on this? So it's probably not a contradiction, even though everyone thinks so, because you just got to understand the sandwich, and then it's over. Okay, but here's where it gets good. Israel overcomes Edom at this point, and what does that fulfill? What does that fulfill? What does that fulfill? <clears throat> Anyone know? Just say even general. 
Jacob Esau. God promises that the older will what? So the younger. Genesis 25 and 26. End of Genesis 25 to be precise. The older will serve the younger. This was an ancient promise, promised to Isaac, say, in around 2000 something BC. Now it's coming to pass 1,000 years later because of who? The man with the Davidic covenant. Remember how I said every promise is kind of rolled into the Davidic covenant? We're not kidding. We are not kidding. Even promises that don't even look like they're related to the Davidic covenant promise, like Jacob versus Esau promise. They're in it. Right? The whole point of this section, if you can see, can one man with the Davidic covenant fulfill all of God's promises and do everything that God has said for the world and for history and the culmination of all the two? Yes, he can. One man can. Okay? But this man doesn't do so perfectly. Does that make sense to everybody? This man does not do so perfectly. But the point is, when the true king comes, who has the Davidic covenant in his hand, he will do it what? Perfectly. See, for us, we always know, oh, Jesus is the hero, Jesus is the savior of the world. You just don't understand how much he's going to do until you put hands and feet on it like this. Does that make sense to everybody? It's like, conquer this nation and that nation and establish this route and this place and this kind of rest and this kind of thing for the whole world. Jesus is that kind of king. Okay? That's why we worship him. When we say he's the king of kings, we really do mean that. Okay, we really do. <clears throat> so in this way, David reigned over all Israel and ministered justice and righteousness. Verses 16 through 18, we don't have much time to cover it, but just note this, two things. First, this is an extension of David's real rule, positive rule with the Davidic covenant. Okay? That's what you have to understand. This is, you know, the fact that he has this organization with Joab and Jehoshaphat and all these other different individuals is a demonstration he does have reign over his kingdom. That cabinet demonstrates his sovereignty. Does that make sense to everybody? Just the picture is here's King David and all his royal regalia and splendor and here are his administrators right behind him and you just look at them and you just say, they are in power. They are in charge. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. You will need to hold this intention with something with later. So you have to remember this. It may take all semester to get there. You need to remember this for the rest of the semester in the back of your mind. Okay? Good. Have a good day.